Gracious Heavenly Father, Father, thank you already for the reminder through wonderful content in these songs that our joy beyond this present world and regardless of difficult circumstances that we may find ourselves in, especially as we think about this past year to a year and a half and all that's transpired, we thank you that our hope is not in those things, but that our hope is in King Jesus. Lord, you are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy to be praised. Our hearts are full already as we think and we ponder the glories of the cross, the glories of Calvary. And even this morning, we have an opportunity to do that as we delve back into the wonderful gospel of Mark and are reminded of the person and the work of Christ. Father, I pray for this morning that you would help us to remove distractions from our thoughts, that we might not be thinking about what is ahead during the day or tomorrow or this week, but that we might recognize that when we open up the Bible, we open up your word and you speak to us directly. And there are things pertaining to our life and where we are at right now to be addressed in the light of the glory of Christ. Father, help us to have soft and tender hearts even now, that our hearts would be teachable. Father, I pray for those who are hurting in our body, those who are experiencing trials of a physical, emotional, or spiritual nature. Lord, you know who they are. I pray that, Father, those things that many of us aren't even aware of that are going on in their lives, you know that you being their great high priest that you would care for them, that you would encourage them this morning, that they would be reminded of the wonder and the beauty of Christ and the fact that He is their high priest if they've trusted in Him and that they can come to Him boldly to the throne throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Father, I do pray for our summit young people, college and career young people who are still at the retreat right now. Pray for much fruit this weekend in their time with Pastor Alex and the staff who is there investing into them. That, Lord, you would do a marvelous work. They are the future. They are the future, our young people. And I pray that, Lord, you would raise up a new generation of passionate young people for Christ. who will turn the world upside down for the sake of the King's name. Father, help us as well. That you would just awaken in us a greater desire to make Christ known in this world in whatever capacity we find ourselves, in whatever context we are in right now, in our work, neighborhoods, homes. Father, help us to have a passion for Jesus and to make him known, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn your Bibles in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is our text for this morning, verses 12 through 21. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 21. This is God's Word. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came to the twelve with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
They began to be grieved and to say to one another, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Jesus' Passover and Betrayal. Jesus' Passover and Betrayal. I love reading biographies. How many of you enjoy a good biography? Yeah, I love reading biographies, and especially biographies I love to read where the, where the writer writes the biography so that it reads like a story. I love interesting biographies like that, that read like a story. And I think the reason why I love biographies like that, that read like a story, is that when each of us stop and ponder our individual lives, and we look back at all of the events and circumstances and people of our lives, our life is really one big story, isn't it? And this story is made up of people, made up of various events. And when these events are put together, there is one grand story that we can tell about our life. You know, it's no different with the life of our Lord Jesus as we've been seeing. The gospel writers from four different perspectives tell one perfect story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the greatest story of all. Amen, beloved? It's the greatest story of all. No story compares to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love reading about his life and pondering who he is and cherishing and treasuring my Savior in prayer and responding to the the beauties and the glories of Christ by means of prayer. And I hope that that's what the study of the Gospel of Mark has done for you. You are all the more appreciating this one beautiful person, and his name is Jesus. You know, there's a wonderful book that I would um, commend to you. It's called One Perfect Life, and it's written or put together by Pastor John MacArthur. And that particular book, One Perfect Life, is a book where they put together the four gospel accounts so that it reads sequentially like a story. It's a great book. I would commend it to you that you would read that. Because it's, it's exactly what we just said right now, that it reads so interesting, like a story, the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, last week we transitioned in the story of Jesus, if you remember, from, from his favorite olive, famous Olivet Discourse at the top of the Mount of Olives in Mark 13, where Jesus foretold the events of the future leading to the culmination of his second coming. And that was Tuesday evening that he preached that famous sermon of Passion Week. We transitioned from that last week to now the events that lead to his suffering, to his death, to his burial, and his resurrection. Remember, Mark is is the rapid gospel, right? He has been moving us very quickly through words like and and immediately to the cross. Mark wants to get you and I to the cross. Remember our theme verse in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That is the theme verse, Mark 10, 45, of the Gospel of Mark. Mark wants to get us to the cross as quickly as possible. Well, now here in Mark 14, we see things beginning to speed up now as Jesus heads to the cross. Because we saw last week that behind the scenes... There's already been a very deliberate plotting, conspiring, campaigning by the religious leaders 
to get rid of Jesus, to get him killed. Now that's the opposition from the outside, but sadly, even from within, from within his close circle of friends and disciples, there's a traitor on the loose, as we saw. And this traitor who since last Saturday has been plotting already to betray Jesus. In fact, he's already gone to the religious leaders by the time of this particular narrative. He's just looking for the opportunity to get Jesus killed. Now, all of this has been slow and and gradual, but now things really pick up in the story of Jesus. And in our passage this morning, we'll see that that it's at this Passover meal the infamous upper room meal, Passover meal, that some monumental things will happen now as Jesus interacts with his disciples, including the turning point, the event of the betrayal of our Lord. This takes place all in the upper room, as we will see. So as we begin looking at the events in the upper room, I want us to hang our thoughts, if you're taking notes this morning, under two main headings, okay? If you're taking notes, I want you to consider first the preparation for the Passover. The preparation for the Passover in verses 12 through 16. Like every devoted Jew did, it's time for Jesus and his disciples to prepare for this Passover meal. And the timing of this preparation, notice in verse 12, is on the first day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. We talked about this last week, that this tells us That this was now, this is now Thursday of Passion Week. Thursday of Passion Week. And we know this because the Passover animal, the Passover lamb, was to be slain before 3 p.m. on that day. And it was not to be eaten until sundown after 6 p.m. So this is Thursday of Passion Week. Mark it. The 14th of the month of Nisan. Not the car Nisan, okay? The Jewish month of Nisan. Now, as I mentioned last week, all of this feasting was in commemoration and remembrance of what great event? Of God's great deliverance of Israel, right? Of Israel's exit from the land of Egypt. And so Jesus and his disciples, like every devoted Jew, begins to make preparations for the meal. Look at verse 12. His disciples said to Jesus, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Obviously, they needed a place for the meal. As we know, Jesus didn't have a a home, at least from the the narrative of the gospel account. So they need a place for this meal. They also need to make adequate preparations for this meal. They needed to get the lamb, have it killed by the priests, have it cooked and prepared. And then there were all the extras that were needed. The purchase of flat or, or unleavened bread, bitter herbs, crushed fruit, moistened with vinegar, water, and of course, the wine. They needed to get all of these elements of the meal in order to flesh out this meal all of this needed to be purchased now listen since judas iscariot was the official treasurer the money guy the most natural thing would have been to send judas to at least be one of the guys who was going to go and purchase these things he would have been the normal natural choice either by himself or with somebody else. But Jesus, notice, doesn't send Judas. How do we know? It says in verse 13 that he sent two of his disciples, but this is key because Luke 22, verse 8, the parallel account specifically says, ready? That he sent Peter and John. He sent Peter and John. 
You ask, why these two? Why not Judas along with them even? Well, obviously, Peter and John were part of the inner circle of three. That's one particular response to that. But the real answer is that Jesus, listen, was already not entrusting himself to Judas. He knew that Judas was already looking for an opportunity to betray him. Remember the flashback of last Saturday in verses 10 and 11? Look there, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Remember that we, we noticed there that this is really a parallel of John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So verses 3 through 11 of chapter 14 of Mark are a flashback to last Saturday. And so from last Saturday, Judas has already been on the move. And so Jesus is aware of this. He's aware that Judas is a traitor. He doesn't want Judas to know the location of this Passover meal. If Judas knows the location of the Passover meal, he's going to have Jesus arrested and ultimately they are going to kill him. And so what we need to understand is that all of these preparations, beloved, all of these preparations are in by stealth, in secret, in secret, not because Jesus is scared of anybody or because Judas is some powerful guy that Jesus can't ultimately control and has authority over, but because Jesus must have this Passover meal with his disciples. And nothing, not even Judas, will stop Jesus from partaking of this meal with his beloved disciples, with his loved ones. And so all things and events will go just as Jesus is orchestrating them. Everything. So look at verse 13. He instructs them, go into the city. Speaking of Jerusalem, by the way, it would have been very busy, especially right now. Everybody's running around making preparations for this Passover meal. It would have been very, very busy. Finding a place at this time would have been very difficult because everybody's looking for a place. And so this was not something easy. Jesus says, go into the city, verse 13, and a man, unnamed, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. That would have been odd. That would have been odd in that culture because in those days, in that culture, only women carried pitchers of water like this particular pitcher of water. Only women did that. Sort of like a, a purse, right? You don't expect a man carrying a purse. It's only women who carry a purse, that was the sense here of this man carrying a pitcher of water. He would have stood out because only women in that culture did that. That's the idea. By the way, men, don't justify the fact that you cannot help around the house or carry around buckets of water or wash dishes because of that, right? It's a cultural thing. But this is the idea. To, to see a man carrying a pitcher of water like this one was out of the norm. He would have been easy to identify, easy to spot. Thus, Jesus says, when you see this man, notice, follow him, follow him. Now, think about this. Think about the, the divine providence in all of this. Think about the divine design of all the specific details of this particular group of or a couple of disciples following Jesus's instructions. I mean, it wasn't a time where they had cell phones, okay? 
They didn't have smartphones where Jesus or the disciples, as they're getting close to Jerusalem, as they travel from Bethany through the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem, a two-mile travel where they could text and say, Hey, man, we're, uh, we're very close. Make sure that you pass by by this particular time. By the way, what corner will you be meeting us at? They couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. How did this man know when to walk by there? In this busy street. How did he know in, the, in this narrow like, like maze those streets were in Jerusalem? How did he know? Obviously, it's all divine providence, isn't it? Jesus is absolutely orchestrating all of this. He is absolutely in control of it all. He has all authority. Well, apparently this man already knew that two of Jesus' disciples would be following him. Look at verse 14. Follow him, and wherever he enters, notice, no mention of the exact location or whose house this is. I mean, I just think about how much faith this took on the part of Peter and John. You know, we're really hard on the disciples as we sort of observe their weaknesses in the Gospels. Many times they stick their foot in their mouth, especially Peter, who is one of the two that Jesus has sent here. We focus so much on their weaknesses, and we're so very hard on them. But as I was studying this here, and all of the details, and what it would have taken for me to transport myself into the shoes of one of those guys, Peter or John, as I'm following these instructions, what faith, what simple faith this took from their Lord. To trust Him, to trust Jesus. Why? Because they knew his track record. Three and a half years now, he's been faithful to these disciples, hasn't he? He's been faithful to them. They've seen him interact in an array of situations. They've seen him fearless and courageous and bold for the truth and compassionate towards people. They've seen him in all kinds of situations. They know their Lord. They know Christ. So they display simple trust here. And because they trust Him, they obey Him, don't they? They obey Him. They do exactly what He says. They take Him at His word. No questions asked, at least recorded. Immediate obedience. Not dragging their feet. Their obedience is all the way. It is complete. Not half-hearted, but wholehearted here, right? Following His instructions. And I wonder, beloved, as we ponder this, how many of us display trust like this currently in the midst of our trials? Currently in the midst of the difficulties that God may have us in. I wonder how many of us can really say that by God's grace and the power of the Spirit and by the guidance of God's holy word, that on a regular basis, we actually trust Jesus this way so as to obey Him unreservedly and wholeheartedly. They did. They trust Christ. There's immediate obedience, complete obedience, wholehearted obedience from the heart. Notice, wherever this man enters, they are to say to the owner of the house, now we, that tells us that whoever they are following, who they're following is a servant, isn't he? This, and this servant is leading them into a particular unnamed home owned by someone else. And upon them encountering this master of the house, they are to declare to him, notice verse 14, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? There is an absolute tinge of authority in Jesus' words, isn't there? Notice, the teacher, 
That definite article, that little word, the, singles Jesus out as the teacher, the preeminent one. The teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus is, is absolutely a, has absolute authority here. It seems that this owner is very familiar with Jesus. Jesus is the teacher, not just another one. Apparently this man has sat under Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. He knows Jesus, and Jesus knows him. And so Jesus has prearranged all of this with this man. And watch this. This man understands that what he owns is not really his. That it's not really his. They're to ask him on behalf of Jesus, where is whose guest room? My guest room, meaning Jesus' guest room. My guest room? My guest room? I thought this was this man's house. Well, on the one hand, it is. But this is not some haphazard wording here, like Mark made a mistake. Oops, I mean, I meant the other guy's home. No. You know what this is communicating? That ultimately, what this man owned, even his own house, belonged to who? To God. To God. And to be used for God's purposes. I wonder how many of us think that way. I wonder how many of us actually view everything that God has given us as a stewardship like that. I wonder how many of us sitting in here this morning think about our possessions, think about our money, think about our car, think about our home, think about our, even our family, everything that God has given us as a stewardship. I am merely a caretaker of God's possessions. I wonder how many of us think that way. Look at verse 15. This man understood that he was a steward of all that he had, and so prearrangements had been made. Verse 15, he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. This upper room would have been upstairs, most likely a room built on the flat rooftop of the house. That's what, That was the culture of the day, flat rooftops. And so it would have been up there. It's been furnished, maybe carpeted. It was, there was a large table in the middle, such a, kind of like a big, gigantic coffee table, low to the ground with couches all the way around this particular large table. And normally, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, who writes about the culture of the day, 10 to 25 people would have fit in a room like this. This room would have been large, and spacious for a large group of this nature. Now listen, some of you have perhaps seen Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. How many of you have seen that particular painting? Yeah, most of us have. It's a famous painting located in Milan, Italy, I think it is. It's a beautiful painting of the Lord and His disciples sitting next to each other at this long table facing forward. Right? So if you're looking at the painting, they're all facing toward you. It's a gorgeous, beautiful masterful painting, a beautiful artwork. Problem is, it's not accurate. It's not accurate in more ways than one. Because you see, in those days, for such a long Jewish meal, what you would do is that you would lay on your side in a reclined position, not sit down like that. And you would lie on couches around the meal table. There would be this massive meal table, sort of like I said, like a, like a large coffee table, and then it would be coddled uh, by couches all the way around. 
Makes you wonder if anybody ever told Leonardo da Vinci that, right? Hey, man, you ought to repaint that. Nobody would have dared to do that. Anywho, this owner has already set up this room for Jesus, fully furnished, and his disciples are going to be coming to partake of this Passover meal with him. Watch this. Upon these instructions, verse 16, the disciples went out and came to the city. They make the commute from Bethany, about two miles away, through the Kidron Valley, to the city of Jerusalem. They make this commute, came to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Boy, underline that, just as he had told them. I love that. I love that. No details missed. Jesus is in absolute control. No matter what the circumstance is, Jesus is in absolute control. Amen? Absolute control. We've seen this throughout Mark. Jesus is never cut off guard. Jesus is never backpedaling. Ever. Never left to to plan B. And beloved, God's character doesn't ever change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If that is the case about Jesus' character during the time of the disciples, here as we're reading this, then Christ is the same today, isn't he? We can absolutely trust him with all of the details of our lives, big and small. He's worthy to be trusted. He must partake of this Passover. And so all of these prearrangements have been made already. All they got to do is... Respond in faith. Follow his instructions and obey his orders. With that wonderful song of old, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Say it with me, but to trust and obey. That's what Jesus wanted from them. That's what Jesus wants from us. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was it necessary, so essential, for Jesus to partake of this Passover. I mean, the sense that you get here is that he has to do this. He has to do this with his disciples. It has to happen. In fact, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I mean, that, is a, that highlights a sense of necessity in the heart of our Lord. He zealously, passionately wanted to have this meal, but it is absolutely essential. It is absolutely necessary that he have this meal. And the question is, why? Why? I think there are at least four reasons, okay? First, because he came to fulfill all righteousness, didn't he? He came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus perfectly obeyed God, his Father, in all things, fulfilled the whole law on behalf of sinners who trust in him. And this was part of that obedience here. This was part of that. This is what we call the active obedience of Christ. That Jesus, when he came to earth as a human, perfectly obeyed all aspects of the law, including the celebration of feasts like these that commemorated God's greatness in the Old Testament. So he must do this because he came to fulfill all righteousness. Second, because he's going to encourage them in the upper room. He's going to encourage his disciples. At some point, he's going to launch into his upper room discourse Recorded for us in John chapters 13 through 17, where he's going to encourage his hurting disciples. He's going to comfort them. He's going to 
pray for them in his high priestly prayer, as recorded in John chapter 17. He wants to encourage his disciples and prep them for the monumental time that has come, namely his suffering and his death. Third, third, he has to have this meal because it's during this meal, as we're going to see next week, we're going to zero in on this, where Jesus will transition from the Old Testament Passover to the New Testament Lord's Supper, or as we know it, communion. Look at this next week. But from this time forward, as believers, our focus will be on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? The Lamb of God. Not a Lamb, like the Old Testament uh, sacrifices, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who definitively brings salvation. Jesus will do that. For 1,600 years or so, animal after animal, blood sacrifice after blood sacrifice, killing after killing of lambs and all kinds of animals has come, but none of those sacrifices has ever definitively dealt with sins or gained God's forgiveness in any capacity or changed people's hearts. But now Christ will. Christ will. There's a big transition that takes place in the upper room as Jesus addresses his disciples, and obviously by implication us. But fourth, it's absolutely necessary that Jesus partake of this Passover because it's at this Passover that Jesus will identify the traitor. The traitor. Who ultimately, that circumstance is going to lead to his suffering and his death. And this announcement... By Jesus in the upper room is what prompts Judas to go out to betray him and to make everything official, right? Official. And so he must take the Passover because it's here he announces his traitor. And this leads us to our second main heading, okay? Consider with me the perpetrator of the Passover. The perpetrator of the Passover, verses 17 through 21. Perpetrator means a criminal, one who commits an illegal act. This is none other than Judas Iscariot. And we've already seen in verses 10 and 11 of Mark 14 that since last Saturday, Judas has already been looking for an opportunity to betray our Lord. He's already gone to the religious leaders. And he's just looking for that particular moment to hand over our Lord to these wicked men. And so now Jesus is going to announce who his traitor is. By the way, all four Gospels, before we get into this, All four Gospels include this particular announcement and various details of it. Look at verse 17. It came when it was evening. When it was evening. This would have been about 6 p.m. now. The Passover meal was to be eaten at night, as I said, and concluded by midnight. So this is a long meal. When it was evening, verse 17, he came with the twelve for one final time. Jesus makes the commute from Bethany to Jerusalem with the other ten disciples, including Judas Iscariot. Can you imagine that walk? Can you imagine the walk from Bethany two miles away through the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem and Judas is there with Jesus walking that two-mile walk to the city, to to this upper room? Man, I'd love to be a fly flying around the room, right? Was Judas next to him? Was Judas trailing behind? Was Judas nervous? Right? Maybe he's thinking, Man, where, where is this headed? 
Maybe I can let the religious leaders on the way know somehow so that they meet us there. Imagine that. Well, eventually they arrive to the upper room in Jerusalem. Peter and John are already waiting for them there. Now remember, Mark isn't giving us all the details here. He gives us snapshots of things. So some time elapses, and then Mark sort of parachutes us to the time of eating in verse 18. Notice, as they were reclining at the table and eating, remember this is a long meal, and over this, the course of this Passover meal, according to the most reputable sources, like Josephus, the Jewish historian, and like the Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the the oral law of Judaism, according to those reputable sources, this meal would have included various aspects. For example, Jesus would have opened things up with blessing and thanksgiving for this meal. That's what he would have done, similar to when we pray right before our meal. He would have blessed the meal. Sometimes there was some kind of devotional, in this case a retelling of the account of God delivering the Israelites from Egypt. And then there was the, Jesus would have led them into the ceremonial partaking of the first cup of wine. After that, according to Josephus, there was a ceremonial washing of hands, symbolic of commitment to moral purity. Following that, the eating of bitter herbs, flatbread would have been distributed dipped in a special sauce and eaten, sort of like our our appetizers before the main meal. Following that, half of the Hallel Psalms would have been sung. Psalms 113 to 115 would have been sung. Then the partaking of the second cup, the second ceremonial cup of wine. And then finally, the moment everyone would have been waiting for, right? The eating of the meal of the Lamb. That's what everybody would have been waiting for. That would have been followed by the third cup, The third ceremonial cup of wine, then the singing of the other half of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 116 to 118, then the last drink of wine, and then all of it would have been concluded before midnight by one last song. This was a long meal, a long meal. And many things, beloved, happened during this long meal, many of them. In John 13, John 13 records that sometime during this meal, Jesus actually got up, And he loved his disciples to the max by girding himself about and washing the stinky feet of the disciples. He did that as as an example, as a model of how they need to humbly serve one another. And John 13 also records that sometime in there, Jesus also alluded to his betrayal of him by somebody who was there. And that he then became also deeply distressed, troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit that one of them would betray him. So over this long meal, it's important to understand many things transpire, but nothing more disturbing and troubling than what Mark zeroes in on in verse 18. Notice there. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Say what? The disciples had already heard from Jesus that he would be handed over to godless men, that he would suffer, that he would be killed, and obviously rise again after three days. But wait, betrayal? By one of us? By one of his own? How could that be? By one of those whom Jesus trusted? Verse 18, who is this traitor? Literally, the one, the one who is eating with me. 
definite article, that little word, the, singles out, pinpoints who this is. The one who is eating with me. Now, why does he highlight the eating part? Why does he highlight that? Obviously, not just because they're eating, but because in that culture, when you were invited to someone's home and you partook of a meal with them, you were considered an intimate friend. You were considered a close friend. You wouldn't partake in the Jewish culture of such a meal with an enemy. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't have them in your home. You want to know the extent of this criminal, mutinous act? It's as if Jesus is saying, the perpetrator even enjoyed a meal with me. He pretends to love me. He pretends to be my friend, my intimate friend. Jesus is communicating the sting of betrayal here. He was troubled because of this. I once spoke at a conference a few years ago, along with some other speakers. And as was the custom of this particular conference, they invited all of the speakers for this dinner at the home of the senior pastor um, just to kind of hang out and sort of just share burdens and pray for one another and all of that sort of as as a closing time for all the speakers. And I'll never forget sort of talking to the main speaker of that conference and he just began to share his heart with me. I just asked him, brother, what, what, what are you burdened about right now? How can I be praying for you? And he just began to pour his heart out. He says, Kempis, something terrible happened this year. He said, it was about six months ago that I hosted at the seminary and Bible college where I, where I was. We, we invited this one particular prominent speaker to come and preach at our conference and to do some kind of a workshop and all of that. I had him in my home. I, took, I, I was basically his chaperone through the whole time that he was there. I took him out for multiple meals. He hung out with my family even, he said. And then he said, two months later during the summertime, after we had said goodbye and everything was wonderful and I thought he was an intimate friend, two months later, all over social media, he just went off and blasted me because he disagreed with a doctrinal issue with me. Just blasted me all over the place. That I didn't change my view on that particular thing. It was nothing heretical, by the way. It's the difference of doctrinal opinion. He just blasted him. He says, I'm just so hurt that I hosted this guy. I had him over my home for for all these meals. I thought that we were friends, and he never said a thing to me about the concern that he had at all. And then he blasted me all over social media. He said, I was in the Southeast uh, Southeast Asia doing, doing some training there, pastoral training, and I heard from people that were messaging me, telling me about this man doing this over social media. I was so hurt. He was in utter shock. That is the feeling of betrayal, isn't it? That's the feeling of betrayal, beloved. You ever have that happen to you? You ever have that happen to you? You love on someone, you entrust yourself to them, you open your heart and life to them, and then they backstab you? They hurt you? Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker. We've all experienced that, the deep sense of troubled spirit that comes with betrayal. And if you have, and if you have, then recognize that maybe you understand one percentage point, if even that, of what Jesus experienced. Realize that your high priest, if you trusted in Jesus, has experienced betrayal to a much greater extent, right? Much greater extent. Because he was perfect, blameless. 
He never sinned. He never had an evil thought. Never bitter. Never resentful. Never hated hater of anyone. Never did anything unkind. It was unjust for people to do what they did to him, including Judas Iscariot. We will never understand what that means. But if, from a human perspective, we've experienced that, maybe we understand one percentage point as Christians of what Jesus must have felt. He felt the pain of betrayal. That's why John 13, 21 again says, when Jesus said this, one of you will betray me, he became troubled in spirit. That means deeply agitated, deeply in horror of what was to happen. You don't think Jesus was human? He was absolutely human. At his incarnation, the eternal son of God didn't cease to be God. He added humanity a human nature to his divine nature never ceasing to be god but now he became the perfect blameless eternal god man christ he was human he felt the pain of betrayal in his humanity so beloved he can sympathize with our weaknesses in that area he can come alongside of you as your faithful high priest Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And why else? To make propitiation. That is a wrath-removing sacrifice. So that he would become a wrath-removing sacrifice for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted or tested in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted or tested, namely his followers. Amen. He says, Jesus became human, the writer of Hebrews, A, that he might pay for your sins, and B, that he might know your humanness and identify with your weakness. Even though he himself was victorious and never fell into sin himself. He understands, brothers and sisters, our weakness, including the experience of betrayal. Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one Jesus who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, understanding this, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, we should draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, this morning, take comfort. Take comfort that Christ, our high priest, is more than able to come alongside of you in great times of pain, anguish, and even the experience of betrayal and great disappointment. Amen? He identifies with us in weakness. This is why 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, under His divine sovereignty, that He might exalt you at the proper time. And how do you do this? How do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties? By casting all your anxiety upon Him. That is all of it, the totality of it by the grace of God. He wants all of it, not part of it. Not ever thinking, you know, this is what God can handle. I'll take care of the rest. The totality of it, all of it, make an effort to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and cast all of your anxiety upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. What comfort. He's mindful of us. 
He's concerned for us. God is not indifferent to our needs, brothers and sisters. Big or small. Big or small. Small. I heard this week about an instance, about an instance in the life of G. Campbell Morgan, who, after a sermon, somebody recorded that a little lady had come up to him after this sermon and asked him, Pastor Morgan or G. Campbell Morgan, um, should I bring even the small things to God? Should I bring even the small things to God? And G. Campbell Morgan very thoughtfully answered, Sister, yes, for everything to God is small in comparison to His greatness. I love that. I love that. He is so great, brothers and sisters, that there is nothing too great or small for our great King. Amen? Nothing. Now watch this. Watch this. His disciples are pained over His disturbing announcement. Verse 19, they began to be grieved it says. This means deeply distressed, deeply saddened, deeply sorrowful. John 13, 22 adds that they were looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Verse 19 of our text, they were saying to him one by one, surely not I. And they're asking him, surely not I. I mean, they are so disturbed and so in disbelief that they are even doubting themselves. Even doubting themselves. They're asking Jesus one by one if it's them. Is it me? Is it me? As if looking for Jesus to reassure them that it's not one of them. By the way, Judas has not walked out of the room yet, has he? He was asking Jesus the same thing too. But not in an honest way. And I mean, from a human perspective, if you and I were writing this story... This is the moment from a human perspective where if you and I were rewriting this, that we would have a happy ending. And this is where Judas Iscariot, when Jesus said this, he broke down in tears, broke down and started confessing his sins to the Lord and repented of his sins, trusted in Jesus, and on the story went. That's how I would rewrite the story. Thankfully, none of us get to rewrite the story because Jesus... At least from a human perspective, this is the means that he was using to go to the cross, right? Though ultimately, even that, if even Judas would have repented, Jesus would have still gone to the cross to give his life as a ransom for many. Sadly for Judas, he doesn't repent. Look at verse 20. As they're asking, and he said to them, it is one of the twelve. And then he really pinpoints who this one is. Literally, the one who dips with me in the bowl. At this table, there would have been dipping bowls for three to four people. These would have contained a dipping sauce made of spices and vinegar and dried fruits. And you would dip your unleavened bread into this particular dipping sauce. Here, the tense of the verb, the one who dips, who dips is a present tense. And the sense is, it's the one who is continually dipping into the same bowl with me. And in case there's any doubt, John 13, 26 says that Jesus dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas. And then Satan then entered into him. Wow. Having obviously been given permission by Christ, right? Jesus wasn't subject to Satan's entrance of, into Judas. 
He does it at the time that Jesus has orchestrated, that Jesus desires. And then Judas shoots out of the upper room to go betray Jesus. And somehow, somehow the disciples are clueless in all of this, thinking that it was another reason. Jesus had sent Judas out to get other stuff for the meal. Now watch this. Even though Jesus exposes Judas, he reminds us that ultimately all of this is according to God's divine plan. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is to go just as it is written of him. In other words, this is going exactly according to God's word. According to God's divine timetable. Acts 2.23 says that all of this was according to God's foreknowledge and his predetermined plan. And in Acts 1.15, Peter says to those in the upper room who are waiting and post-Jesus rising from the dead, they're waiting in the upper room for the arrival of the Spirit of God. And Peter says in Acts 1.15, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which he foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. This is exactly the way, folks. God planned it. David spoke of this, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some 1,000 years before. In Psalm 41, verse 9, David in the Spirit says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Who was he speaking of? First and foremost, speaking of David's betrayal at the hands of one Ahithophel in 2 Samuel chapter 15. But it was also a foreshadowing, wasn't it? A foreshadowing of the ultimate betrayal of Jesus at the hands of the perpetrator, Judas Iscariot. So this is according to God's predetermined plan. And why? Why, brethren? Why would God providentially bring about the suffering and the death of his own eternal son? Why would he do this? Isaiah 53.10 says that it pleased the Lord to crush him. To put him to grief. Why? If he would render himself as a guilt offering. For who? For who? For you. For you. For you. For me. Amen? For us. He became our sacrifice. Sacrifice in our place. Our substitute. Who paid for sins. Who rose from the dead. Conquering sin and death. On our behalf. So Jesus reminds us here that in an ultimate sense, this is all part of God's plan. Nevertheless, notice verse 21, Judas is responsible for his sin, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Boy, that is a terrible thing to hear, right, about your life. Woe is a word of severe condemnation. Jesus says, better that this traitor had not been born, that he had never existed. Now think about this. As Jesus speaks, Judas is listening. Judas is still listening here. Jesus' words would have brought a deafening silence to the room. We don't have any indication in the text that this man has left the room. And yet he still will not repent. Beloved, is there a lesson for us here? 
As we watch the, the, the circumstance centered on this man, first and foremost of Jesus, but this traitor, Judas Iscariot, is there a lesson or implications for us? And the answer is absolutely yes. I love what Sinclair Ferguson comments here. Quote, Judas is the example par excellence of the man or woman who believes that he or she can never sin his way out of the grace of God. In other words, the person who keeps saying to themselves, it's okay if I keep doing this, after all God is gracious, He'll forgive me when I decide I'm going to repent of my sin, whatever that is. He'll forgive me when I decide that I want to be made right with Him and I'm finally going to trust in Him. That's what he's saying. He goes on, we should remember Judas if we ever think we can decide the point at which we will stop sinning. Sin deceives as well as hardens. It leads us to that hardness of heart and blindness of understanding which ignores the last ember light. Ultimately, in this state of deception, ultimately, even the warnings of the Son of God through His Word are silenced when we are deceived. If we yield to sin, as Judas had done in his heart for whatever reason, it masters us. We are no longer free or able to choose the moment when we will engage in a mutiny of grace and overthrow its influence on us. Listen to this. Judas realized this when it was too late. At first, Judas would not repent. Eventually, Judas could not repent. End quote. So true. What's he saying? What's he saying, brothers and sisters? Woe on the person who treats God's grace as cheap. Woe on the person who secretly coddles known sin and simply will not repent. Woe on the person who keeps saying, tomorrow I will get my life right with God. Tomorrow I will turn from my sins and trust this Savior. Tomorrow I will do this. Tomorrow may never come. Tomorrow may never come. One more day. If I could just live one more day like this, then I will repent. Just one more dainty morsel of sinful pleasure, and then I'll stop. Listen to me. That is a lie from Satan from hell. And if that's you, that is... Sure evidence that you are already living in a state of deception, that your heart has become deceived and hardened. You become a Judas at heart. You've elevated self and selfish pleasure and greed and covetous towards sinful pleasure above Christ. And I told you that I've been praying, brothers and sisters, for my own heart as well as for your own hearts individually and collectively as a church, that our church would strive by God's grace to be a church full of Marys, of devoted, wholehearted followers of Jesus who love sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to His Word and responding out of a, a heart of affection and love and gratitude for Him in loving obedience, serving one another in a way that exalts Christ. I've been praying that we would be a church full of followers like that, like humble Marys rather than Judas's at heart. Repenting, confessing, even as believers, knowing that 
Our confession will always receive the answer, yes, because of our faith in Christ, not because of our performance in a guilt-driven kind of way. Because Jesus said it is finished, so that when you repent of your sins and confess them as a believer, 1 John 1, 9, the answer is always, yes, I will forgive you. Because of my Son, and there is renewal daily at the foot of the cross, even for us as believers. That we would be a church full of those who preach the gospel to ourselves daily, beloved. That we would come to our high priest for mercy and grace. And that he would help us to be people who live holy, Christ-like lives. I beg you this morning, learn from the lesson and the lessons of Judas, brothers and sisters. Let us learn from this. And so, yes, on the one hand, his sin was unique. But on the other hand, whenever we choose to live in known sin and not repent of it, we betray our Lord by pledging allegiance to that pet sin or to the great idol of self that leads to all kinds of other sins. And listen, maybe you're here this morning. You say, Pastor Kempis, I hear you. I have sinned greatly in my life. You don't even know the stuff that I've done. If you knew the stuff that I've done, you wouldn't even be proclaiming this message. Yes, I will, because that's what God's word says to you, great sinner. That even though your sin is great, there is no sin that God will not forgive you of in Christ Jesus. God knows your life. God knows what you've done. God knows what you did yesterday. God knows what you did this morning. God knows all of your thoughts during this message. God knows everything. And he would call upon you to draw near to the throne of his grace at the foot of the cross to come to him, to confess your sin, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, and to plead with him that he would forgive you. Listen, if you come broken over your sin with a desire to no longer live for yourself, That is already a sign that God is working in your heart. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he would save you. Hear me. Your sin may be great. And your sin may be of such a nature that you would be ashamed to get up here and proclaim it to everybody here. But Jesus is a greater Savior. Come to him. Confess your sin to him. Receive his free forgiveness. Receive eternal life. Be reconciled to God. Again, learn from the example of a man like Judas. Don't be so close to the truth and yet so far away. Where your affections and your heart are not moved towards obedience and allegiance to Christ who has given his life for sinners such as you and I. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you. What a powerful, powerful passage reminding us of the events in real history of 2,000 years ago. And Lord, of a man who walked close to Jesus physically, who was cared for by Jesus, all of his needs, who saw the greatness of Christ displayed in his words and his works. And oh Lord, he still betrayed the eternal Son of God. Father, help us not to take our faith even as believers, so lightly. We know that our faith is not based upon what we do even now as those in Christ. We are not performing or doing things so that you would love us more or so that your favor would be upon us. That can only happen based upon the finished work of Christ. But Lord, in response to our 
great salvation, what you've done in our hearts. We just want to be people who obey you out of a heart of gratitude and love. Help us to do that by your grace. Help us to deal with sin in our lives so that we would not become hardened and be deceived in our hearts and not become like Jesus because we're holding on to our sin. And Father, for those who are here who don't have a relationship with you, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day when they trust in Christ. May today be the day when they see a gracious Savior to be cherished and treasured. And may they trust in Him and live a life by Your grace of allegiance to Him and not to themselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.